Hello and welcome to The Sunday Salon, a podcast celebrating brilliant books and the women who write them. My name is Alice Zania Jarvis and each week I chat to an inspiring female author about her work, her career, how she writes, what she reads and everything in between. I'm interested in the stories behind the stories and the joy that books can bring, no matter what genre or style. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts, but for the best experience, I really recommend using the new app Entail, which will allow you to look at exclusive pictures as we talk, click on links, even shop the books featured. It's truly amazing. My guest this week is the journalist and author Charlotte Philby, who's written for the likes of The Independent and Marie Claire, and has just published her debut novel, The Most Difficult Thing. A psychological thriller, I absolutely loved this book and devoured it in one sitting. It's set between London and Greece and combines suspense with loads of family drama and a dash of glamour. So Charlotte, welcome. Thank you so much for coming along today. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with the book. Uh, How would you sum it up and what made you write it? So the book is being billed as domestic suspense meets contemporary espionage. And I think that Erin Kelly sort of hit the nail on the head when she said that it's the night manager set in a woman's world, which is exactly sort of... Such a great description. I love it. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. And obviously, um, you know, it's exactly what I was sort of hoping to achieve. So it feels... um, yeah, it feels like a sort of apt way of looking at it. And it's really interesting because um, our, this, the protagonist, I, I sort of hesitate to say a heroine, but the, the, the protagonist uh, goes through this motherhood journey um, while also, I, I don't want to give away too much, while it's difficult. also being <laughs> a spy. Can you, give, can you outline the basic premise for yeah. me? Um, so... Uh, So the the book sort of starts with Anna, the protagonist, um, walking out on her life, her sort of seemingly perfect existence as a magazine editor with mother of two young children, married to her university boyfriend. Mm. Um, As she walks out, there's sort of this spark of realisation that she's actually working as a spy. Mm. And then the book goes through in dual narrative between her point of view um, and another character called Maria. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's enough to set it up Um, and obviously much has been made of the fact that you are Kim Philby's uh, granddaughter Um, and now you've written a spy novel you must expect a lot of that how does that make you feel? Um, Well I think I have to be sort of gracious about it and and, you know sort of sort of acknowledge the fact that perhaps it gives has given me um, sort of visibility um, mm. that I might not have had as a female sort of uh, author of spy novels because um, it's one of those sort of slightly fusty um, genre, male genres where I think in order to be taken seriously mm. it can be quite a challenge and maybe uh, having the Philby name sort of gives me a certain gravitas in that sense that I mm. might have otherwise lacked but um, that said it's very different mm. it's not a sort of traditional spy thriller and no, um, no and that was very intentional like I think mm. Kim's story has been very informative in my life in the sense mm. of sort of the way that I've um, maybe interpreted what he did and sort of mm. looking at the impact on family and the women who have been written out of the story mm, um, that's and interesting. On, yeah I felt like I wanted to redress that balance but I also wanted to create something that was fully my own and was something that I'd want to read and I love a lot of spy thrillers but I often I'm more interested in the adaptations because they tend to be sort of glossier and more of a character study and mm. less sort of um, austere mm. than some of the traditional 
um, espionage novels. So that was sort of where I was going. Yeah, and it is it does have that sort of contemporary glamour. You describe her uh, her outfits and her her red lipstick and and so on. It feels it it doesn't conform to the boundaries of the traditional spy novel. It does feel very relevant and contemporary and glamorous in that sense, uh, which is one of the things I loved about it. Um, did you resist the genre at all because of because of all the curiosity around your grandfather? I resisted writing a book about Kim. Mm. I, I've been asked a few times to write a book about Kim, and that's not necessarily to say that somewhere down the line I wouldn't write a book that's, you know, in some way about Kim, but I was really resistant to that being the first thing that I did because yeah. I didn't want to be defined by that or be seen to be sort of cashing in on it in mm. sort of the, the sort of the wider sense. Um, but the truth is I've always been obsessed with true crime. Um, I wrote my A-level dissertation on In Cold Blood and Helter yeah. Skelter, which was the, ma- uh, the prosecuting attorney's uh, account of the Manson trial. Um, and I am really into spy fiction. Mm. and you know in uh, undoubtedly as a result of having so much um about kim sort of floating around in my psyche when i was growing up um but i really wanted to bring that together with a sort of glossy glamorous um sort of world that you know that just makes something feel a little bit sexier mm. at risk of sounding sort of ridiculous but i i did i wanted to make something that was sort of a little bit fun, a, not frivolous, but something that felt super engaging, kind of fresh, modern. Um, but also, I really wanted to sort of dig into not just what it takes to be a spy, but what it takes to enact that every day and dupe everyone who's around you, and not just the impact on other people, but on yourself and what that must do to your psyche in terms of, you know, who you can trust and how you feel about your own decisions. Have you always wanted to be a writer? What, what age were you when you realised you wanted that? Um, I don't think it was ever a conscious decision. I think I've always written. My mum did a big dump, this sort of massive Safeway bag full of um, my old diaries and exercise books from when I was growing up and uh, reading back at those. <laughs> um, I've clearly always wanted to be a writer and I used to do things like writing about myself in the third person. <laughs> um, I think it was almost a laziness that I became, not laziness, but sort of following the path that became that I became a journalist. Mm. It was sort of like a series of events that led to that rather than a conscious decision. And I've definitely gone through many, my career's gone through many mas- manifestations to sort of get here. Like, it's so funny. If you look at the biography at the front of my book, it looks like this perfect um, sort of tra- trajectory to becoming a novelist. But actually, at every stage, it's just felt like one failure after another. And mm. it's only when you look back and you sort of, got to the place where you realised that you wanted to be, that you can Mm. be like, oh, actually, that made sense, even if... So, yeah, ultimately, I've always wanted to be a writer, but I've done loads of different things along the way to facilitate being this kind of writer. I'm fascinated by that description of one failure after another, because certainly looking... I mean, I've known you for many years, and looking from the outside, that's just not how I would characterise your career at all. I want to know what you mean by that, but first, perhaps it would make sense if you could kind of give me an overview of how you got into journalism and what your trajectory was and and then you know why you see see it as a series of failures yeah so um I went to university I went to Sussex which was the first place that 
sort of offered me an unconditional place. So I was in Australia and I was on the phone to my mum. I was like, yeah, that sounds fine. Like I didn't go and see any university. I was so sort of unengaged in the whole process and it was definitely the right thing to do. But anyway, I sort of ended up there. And then from there, I did an NCTJ in newspaper journalism. Mm. Um, I really sort of felt... I in university the lovely thing about Sussex is it's such a parody of itself in mm. many ways um you know we were studying sort of um I, I for a while I, got, I thought I got quite into Marxism and you know I really wanted to sort of shove it to the man so I thought yeah I'll either become a sort of a, a lawyer sort of fighting for good and then I realized if you want to fight for good being a, a lawyer probably is the last thing you should do because you're so sort of constrained by the parameters of the law um so I decided that I was going to be um sort of an investigative journalist so um, I did my journalism training and then I ended up doing internships. I basically applied everywhere and I ended up going to Camden New Journal, which was brilliant, mm. um, and a couple of local papers in Brighton and to Dazed and Confused magazine. Um, and from there, I got work experience at The, at the Independent, where Word. we met. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I kept doing that ongoing. Um, I'd actually done that sort of when I was doing my A-levels and it carried on going back and forth. And eventually I just sort of took position it was sort of like squatters rights I just <laughs> I think quite a few people did that yeah, that's right? how I got my job yeah <laughs> <laughs> I just sort of went and worked it's refused to leave exactly <laughs> and then eventually I think someone assumes you're on the payroll and then it just um sort of goes from there but um after that so I stayed at the Indy for um eight years and I sort of went from working on the features desk um to the Saturday magazine mm. to the news desk um and after I had my second son, I just felt like in order to be a super, um, you know, to be a really effective newspaper reporter, you have to be so available and so mm. sort of mentally able to just absorb and give so much. Um, and I felt I couldn't do that with two young children. Mm. So I left and I sort of kept on this sort of, um, sort of like lighthearted parenting column. And I decided to launch Motherland. Yes, which was a, a digital magazine, a very kind of cool digital magazine for mothers, parents. Yeah, mm. and I think it's weird because it's five years ago and, and now um, perhaps I'm just so stuck in that algorithm that it, it sort of seems to be ever-present to me. But there's, you know, you can hardly look for a sort of, um, you know, without seeing an alternative parenting space and there's mm. so much room given to voice sort of different ways of, different models of parenthood or mm you know just ways of being when you just happen to have children and I wanted to, but at that time there just seemed to be a real absence of sort of parenting related media that wasn't sort of either saccharine sweet or really dogmatic in one way or another and I just wanted to give voice to different women having mm. different experiences and we did that and it, it was quite sort of it was sort of style mixed with sort of quite um, sort of thoughtful analysis of yeah. news and anyway so I did that for two years and just as it was sort of at its peak I walked away from it so that felt like a huge failure because I hadn't sort of been able to in order to monetize it mm. um, which obviously I had to do because it wasn't just a passion project it, it was also supposed to be um, what sort of fed me and my family um, I'd sort of recently had a third baby and um, I realized that in order to sort of monetize this business, I'd have to become sort of a channel for influencers and yeah. and just, you know, just sort of be tainted by advertisers in a way that, that would have sort of undermined the brand, the sort of really genuine 
uh, sometimes quite cynical brand that I wanted to create. Mm. Um, so walking away from that, just as we were just basically that we had a new investor who sort of promised the earth, and just as we were signing, he massively changed the terms of the contract. Mm. Um, and I walked out, and that moment was just like. I don't know at the time it felt like a huge failure but also it was like I could almost see this crack emerging like letting in new light I know mm. it sounds silly but I sort of felt a sense of relief and in, in, in possibility and a while after that I sort of started to think about how well I started writing the novel and the sort of the clean version is I carried on writing the the novel and did um, sort of part-time jobs on the side and managed to get an agent and you know contract and here we are but the reality is actually I was sort of in the throes of a breakdown by that point mm. um, I was really struggling with the kind of parent that I felt that I was being and was able to be um, I felt like I'd sort of given so much to this thing and um, in the pro and but I'd ended up sort of back at square one which wasn't in hindsight necessarily true um, and I felt like in order, I, I, end, I ended up ringing a, a recruitment agency and I was mm. like, I want a job, I need to be well paid. Um, it can basically be anything, but it can't be to do with parenting. And then the next day I got called back and they were like, well, you know, is that parenting thing definitely like a deal breaker because we got this job? Um, so basically I ended up doing sort of marketing in this job that was 8 a.m. till 5 p.m. Um, in sort of quite a far away place in London and I, I did that for about six months and I just felt you know I was just sitting on the tube and I love the people I work you know that was, there was lots that was great about it but I just felt like this is not where I'm supposed to be mm. um, and again it was like leaving at seven in the morning and coming back at six not seeing my kids um, and then just as I felt like things weren't going to come together I managed to finish the book and then now here we are <laughs> yeah and retrospect that all looks great but at the time it was like I can't cut it as a freelancer I can't cut it in a proper job mm. I can't run my own business <laughs> what can I do mm. so it's just interesting when you look back at things how actually they felt at the time doesn't mm. necessarily reflect what they were when you left motherland mm. and s were combining writing the novel with a job in marketing and looking after three children. When were you writing? How were you? How were you fitting this in? Because I mean, it must. I mean, it, sound, it sounds almost impossible. It, in to be quite honest, when I look back, I don't quite know how I did it. I feel, mm. but actually, I feel like maybe that was my salvation. Like mm. that was my way of creating a space for myself and a world away from this sort of domestic realm where I could do and be and experience things that I just couldn't in my mm. actual everyday life. Mm. In terms of the practicalities, I was doing it when my son was asleep, but the thing is we were living like at the top of a, f of a block with nine sets of stairs and every time he fell asleep, he'd fall asleep just as we walked in and he can't get the buggy up, so I'd have to like plant the buggy in the hallway and then sit on the stairs, sort of writing it on my phone or writing it in a book. I've got parts of the book that I wrote on the back of a bus receipt, literally. Uh, other bits like we were lived in my mum's basement for a while because at the time we were sort of doing up our house we had to gut the whole thing it took like a year and a half and we were living partly in my mum's basement and sometimes for like a couple of hours I'd give the baby to her and go to the park and write um, it was really piecemeal but now I'm writing three days a week nine to five um, it's a completely different process mm -hmm. did you seek any professional help during that time did you have anything that you found useful 
Um, no, I did start going to see a therapist, but to be honest, I didn't find it that useful because right. I felt like I had this really interesting woman called Bridget Collins. Um, she's a novelist talking and she was she was talking about when she used to work as a Samaritan and sometimes she had the same callers ringing again and again night after night and she felt like they had become locked into their own narrative they were mm. telling her the same stories almost verbatim and it was like it was reinforcing in their minds the idea that they had of themselves and what mm. and I sort of without being able to articulate it as well as she had sort of started to feel maybe that was part of you know, that was sort of part of what was happening with my experience. Like, we'd go back to, you know, because I didn't necessarily have the most happy childhood. And it would always be like, let's talk about, um, you know, what, you know, talk, it, it always just sort of harked back to things that actually I felt like I had come to terms with. And mm. whereas I can still look at them and they make me sad, they're not the root cause. Like, it was actually a very, it was a fundamental, like, exhaustion mm. and being overwhelmed. So, I rather than I'm I'm not sort of that I'm not that good at um reading self-help or sort of seeing therapists but I think I'm really good at evaluating my own feelings mm. um and I th I find like I'm really also really good at and it's a failing in many ways like my mom always says you know just as you're getting good at something you always walk away from it but I actually feel like I have a very strong ability to read my gut instinct and if mm. so, something's telling me this isn't right mm. even if like with motherland on the uh, you know in many senses it's a great success if it's not working for me if it's not ticking boxes and I do actually do that I really write lists and mm. sort of try and be quite forensic about wh what I have what I want and what, what you know what, what's the disparity and how to redress that um, and so I think that's a process I've gone through with myself sort of working out where I want to be and how I can do it and what needs to give in order to get there. Mm, mm. It's interesting that you say sort of not good at reading self-help as if it's the sort of some kind of skill that one is meant to <laughs> master. It sort of says quite a lot about kind of expectations we place on ourselves um, because, I mean, I, sp I suppose more if it's not for you then, you know, it's just it's not for you when did when did you start to amidst this what sounds like a an incredibly difficult period when did you start to feel a sense of respite or a sense of the kind of gloom lifting um to be honest I think it's definitely been a case of sort of two steps forward one step back and there are still and I'm I'm like hugely governed by my hormones I think we all are as women but mm. um I have polycystic ovaries and I have really um sort of um sw like mood swings so one minute I can feel like actually everything's amazing but when that happens it's sort of like anticipating <laughs> the fall that's going to come after that so I wouldn't say that I'm you know I'm not gloomy and I don't feel depressed and I know that I'm not depressed but I know that I worry a lot and mm. I'm constantly anticipating something bad happening but since I've basically since I've started getting more sleep things have been so much better mm. I can rationalize and deal with anything once so if I'm well slept but it took a long time my youngest is now three and a half and he's now finally I mean last night he was up loads but generally he sleeps through mm. um, and now I just feel really like we sort of I feel now finally um, is the answer that I'm finally coming to a place where I feel like actually it was all worth it and um, I feel able to cope generally 
but like everyone, you know, every day is different. Mm, mm. And and when you were writing the the book um, in amidst this, were you writing it with a view for? I mean, did, was did you see it being published? Was it was it sort of more organic than that? Was it? I mean, how did you even know how to? begin writing a novel <laughs> uh, what what were the early early seeds of that well when I was living in this flat three million flights up um, and you know with the tiny baby and everything going on um, I went for a sort of boozy pub lunch with a friend and basically told her that I felt like running away from my life mm. and then I started wondering like what it would take for a woman to walk out on her family because mm. that's such an unusual narrative it's like men walk out all the time and nobody bats an eyelid and no one questions why or how um but when a woman does that it's mm. so definitive and it's sort of so that was really the question that I sort of was um mulling over and then that combined with my desire to write a, a spy novel it just felt like this fusing of all the different things that I mm. wanted to achieve and then um, I signed up to do this online Curtis Brown course. Right. They're, ordinarily, they're re- these courses tend to be really expensive, and I'm slightly dubious about, you know. But I wanted to, it was 200 quid, and it was online, and I really wanted to give myself the space and the incentive to just keep writing bits, 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 and see, see what came together. And quite early on in that process, I got an agent, um, Julia Silk, and she has been, I mean... You know, I'm not just saying this, but she, I don't, I don't know if it wasn't for her, her initial belief and then her really strict feedback. Um, I'm not sure that I would have got here. So I wrote the first three, uh, three chapters and then six chapters and sent them to her and she loved them and she signed me and, you know, we had this vision for the book and then I went away and sort of wrote 80,000 words showed them to her and she was like this is not good enough and I knew they weren't good enough it was Mm. literally one half term I needed to get space so I took my two youngest boys uh, away to Brighton got like an Airbnb and every night basically sat there and drank a glass of a bottle of wine and just typed thinking you know this is just all going to be marvellous I know how to do this (laughs) and then it came to the end of it and I was like oh it's kind of fine like I'm the opposite of a perfectionist so I just sort of get things done and I sent it to her she was like it's not good enough like do it again come back so I did and then what, it was completely enough. again or did you use what you had as a basis and I mean it? it's, it's, uh, it's it was a basis in that it kind of gave me an idea about the characters and you know it sort of informed their background in my mind but in terms of the rewrite it was like wholly rewriting mm. 80,000 words mm-hmm. and and when did it get to the stage that you knew that that was going to be published did you you completed the novel and submitted yeah. it yeah so it was probably I think it was just under 12 months from when I started to when it was um, to it went on submission and then I had the offer from Borough Press. How does it feel to have after having had that sort of I, I slightly hate this expression but that sort of wilderness kind of time when you look back on it and now you see the book in your hands and you see the biography you know of yourself this what looks like an incredibly neat successful trajectory Mm. how does that feel are you able to sit back and enjoy that or not really I don't think it's in my nature to enjoy things like that for a very long time without sort of worrying about what's going to come next and worrying about what the reviews will be and how you know but I feel so proud of myself Mm. and I it makes me feel like I genuinely actually 
don't mind what people say, how people react to it. Mm. You know, even though, you know, the voice says like, oh, but what about the reviews? And then I'm like, well, what about the reviews? You know, I wrote something that I spent so long wanting to write. I did actually write another novel like eight or nine years ago that I had rejected. Mm. Um, so to, to, and I sort of, at that point, I was like, okay, fine. I'll just go back to my job. Like, clearly this isn't for me. Um, I can't expect to be able to do, like, have a job, write novels and have children. Um, but now I'm like, actually, I could do that and I have done it. And it just sort of gives me faith in every, everything else that I want to do. Mm. And it also just makes me think when I look at other people and I think, oh, my God, but look at how successful they are and how effortless it is. It's like, well... I know how these things can look so different to how mm. they were. So it makes me sort of more measured in how I compare myself to other people. Is that a social media thing, that comparison thing? Um, potentially, potentially. Um, but, I, th- yeah, I think it is. And, it, uh, and social media is so weird just because the moment you start looking at one, th- like I think it could be quite healthy if it didn't have this really weird algorithm ju- that just, just like, you know, so for me, because... I used to have motherland I'm sort of locked in I was for a long time locked into this sort of motherhood algorithm mm. which became really you know like a bit of a head messer upper um and now it's like all authors <laughs> um whereas I'd really like to look at social media and see sort of lovely birds and beaches <laughs> and I don't know like um sort of take me out of my own mind so yeah I think that's the thing about social media is it, it's it's it sort of pushes you in and yeah you start to compare yourself to, to people who are sort of seemingly trying to do the similar things do you regulate your use of it um in no in no way as effectively as i should do and i have done mm. i took a six month break completely oh i remember that actually, yeah. yeah um and that was just over a year ago so and that actually was part of the time. That was during the time that I was writing the book. So mm. perhaps that was another way that I made time because when I look at my screen time reports, I'm like, oh my God, how do I manage to, to sort of while away this much time on social media um, and achieve anything else? But uh, I I don't, I'm, I'm a bit, um, I'm a bit of uh, a poster. I guess I mm. post more than I scroll. Yeah. Um, which is probably like the equivalent of being a pillow princess or something. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so I don't waste a huge amount of time on it, but more than I would like to. And I just think that it sort of rewired all our brains in, you know, this is a very obvious thing to say, but so I don't have problem in, I can sit down and write all day. And, and you know, I don't have a problem sort of with long form that way, but it's the long form thinking that mm. I feel, um, you know, so your brilliant interview with Atessa, right. which I last week or um, well, previously, <laughs> whenever <laughs> it was. You're giving everyone a peek behind the curtains <laughs> of the non-chronological recording. Yeah. <laughs> so your past interview with um, Atessa Mushveg, uh, she says something, I'm going to completely misquote her, but it's something about your... Um, mind, you know, as a writer, your mind is your greatest tool and don't pollute it. Um, And I just feel like I'm in a constant state of trying to uh, balance my understanding that looking, you know, I I, I sort of, part of me feels like there's absolutely nothing wrong with just sort of, you know, really sort of uh, quick fix, interesting, like, you know, sort of slightly banal little things. but then the other part of me thinks that actually it's really important just to give yourself mental space and sort of immerse yourself in other people's lives and give yourself time to eavesdrop. I think mm. it's very important. Mm. <laughs> um, mm. 
you know, I, I, there's nothing I love more than sitting there and pretending not to know someone sitting next to me and sort of absorbing all the details of their conversation, um, not just as a writer, but just as a nosy person and sort of, you know, as a way to sort of just experience how other people live and think. Um, and maybe that's one of the key things that social media takes away, as mm-hmm. well as the ability to be bored. What are you like when you're writing? You mentioned there the eavesdropping. You do you do you I mean it sounds like you, you can't be too precious or ritualistic because you're sort of grabbing scraps of of time. But do, do you have a process? Do you plot things out first? Do you how do you divide your time? What what do you do? Well, you're right that it's very much, a, you know, this idea of sort of living in your head and sort of with the characters for, for sort of months on end while you're writing. I do do that to a degree, but I also live with three small children and mm. um, and animals and, you know, my husband. And, and I have to be engaged with my life because um, I just don't think it would be fair not to, not to be. So um, whereas I have all that going sort of on in the background and what I tend to do is at the beginning or what I have done for the final two books hopefully not final the current two books <laughs> um, after the most difficult thing um, I've booked myself into a writing retreat and for four days and just sort of buttoned button down the hatches and just written for like 14 hours a day and really got a rigorous idea of the structure um, and who needs to do what and because my books tend to be I'm more inclined to say they're like political thrillers that's what mm. I want to say they are and those are the things that I love those sprawling like you just don't know where it's going to go next mm. um, and that's definitely what I've tried to do with the next two but really focusing on the people rather mm. than the politics but that does require a lot of um, uh, research and I have some really amazing contacts who give me sort of details that I would you know that give me that insight that I wouldn't otherwise have um, and I also use old uh, legal cases mm sometimes ongoing legal cases so um it uh, sort of reading through those um what i tend to do is sort of do part one part two part three i read this brilliant john york's into the woods which is the only book that i've really read on the writing process that i finished i think it's really interesting and i sort of go along according to his theory which i've slightly forgotten but hopefully sort of ingrained in my psyche about doing a part one two three and there has to be this sort of pivotal moment at the end of each part um and I decide the sort of the loose outline. The second book, I basically wrote the whole book and then Mm. suddenly realized I wanted a second voice. And I realized that that voice was one of the characters from the book I'd written nine years earlier. So I then wove that in, which sort of, and then from there it was a sort of lot of uh, sort of counter research and going through and sort of tying up. Mm. I mean, I know if you read The Most Difficult Thing, it seems like it must have been almost meticulously plotted. I think because people keep saying to me you must have but actually it's not there were huge plot holes and I had to go back and sort of wait, work out ways to fix them so mm. um, but yeah I do think that point about the fact that it, it came from such an old book is that nothing's wasted and even if we think that there's like this sort of this process that we have everything that we've ever thought and seen is still somewhere in our head and it kind of you know it's just a matter of pulling it in when we need it and when we find it how are you finding the marketing process? How are you finding the whole, the kind of publicity um, period that you're on at the moment? Does it come naturally to you or is it quite stressful? Um, I think it is, in a way it comes natural, but like, you, you know, I'm used to asking questions and I find it really weird to be asked questions, but I love writing about the actual writing process. When people keep asking me about my grandfather, it's like, 
I have very strong opinions about it, and mm. or not strong opinions, but I have very complex and sort of well considered opinions that I've been money over. But that it's his is not necessarily my story, and I find a little bit, you know, that can be a li- feel a little bit like okay, when can we start talking about the book? Mm. <laughs> um, but when we're actually talking about the book and when I'm talking to people like you about this fun stuff, I'm, you know, it's great. But there is that, it, there, it's that really weird, like, self-reflective action. And just constantly talking about yourself, I don't think is necessarily healthy. And we're also mm. narcissistic anyway in this whole, you know, in, in the way that we sort of live. And, you know, I'm constantly trying to create a brand for myself on social media and thinking about myself sort of as this objective being mm. um in a way that I, I you know five years ago even I would have been so disapproving of because it's so bizarre and sort of inauthentic and um but that's sort of what you have to do um and as long as you do it in a way that doesn't um undermine who you are and what you're about and what you you know what you want to achieve I suppose it doesn't matter does it frustrate you when people focus on your grandfather because that has been the sort of top line of a lot of the stories announcing the book. Mm. Is it irritating? Um, it is, but also I have to be. I have to understand that. Why would the Observer have written a big piece about my? Yeah, book? I mean you're a journalist, yeah, aren't you? So exactly. You know, yeah. I understand what the you know there has to be a top line, and that's the obvious one. Mm. And let's not get above our stations. Like I'm, I'm a debut novelist, you know, journalist and novelist. There's nothing, there's nothing exceptional to say necessarily, yeah. but you know. Um, I don't know. I would. I mean, every you know, everybody has an interesting story. Mm. It just so happens that everybody, well, not everybody, but lots of people know about Kim's, and people mm. are interested, and that's a sort of an obvious hook. And I don't resent it at all. But um, and you've written wonderfully about it as well. You did that oh. fantastic piece for the Independent Thank you. Thank you. magazine that I always remember. That was such an amazing experience getting to go back to Moscow and mm. sort of um, explore and sort of think. I mean, yeah, that that was. That was a really amazing process because it was like taking uh, my family history and trying to understand a story that I guess in our house is sort of has always been is known in you know and it's been reconstructed in so many different ways and I've sort of read and seen and heard so much about his life, but within the context of the family has always been sort of seen differently. Um, but I wanted to understand my relationship with his legacy and that was a really extraordinary experience going and meeting people who you know his comrades and meeting for the first time in adult life his wife um and going back to the house that I hadn't been to since he died in 1988 mm. um and finding it all exact well apartment finding it all exactly as it was it was almost sort of like a mausoleum um and seeing how much the city's changed and mm. sort of you know in terms of the course that he was fighting for what's happened since then and mm. um, you know the, the whole world's changed so much um, but that was really interesting and I think going to, to Russia in 2010 probably enabled me to see it in a way that is very different to how it looks now mm. Mm. it must be so complicated when it's a family member like that and you have such mixed emotions because on the one hand there's always that sort of familial bond and then the sort of you have the kind of popular narrative of sort of in you know betrayal or whatever it must be very difficult to process that particularly I suppose when you were younger I mean now you must be pretty au fait with it Mm. um when did you first become aware of that I mean it was always 
evident that something you know he wasn't like my other grandparents like we had to, if we wanted to go and see um grandpa kimsky as we knew him we would have to get on an airplane and go to moscow where we'd be met by this car driven by an a russian person who would man who would then you know sort of pull out a siren from behind this really 80s like grey curtain between the back seat and the boot mm. and stick it on the top and then we'd go flying down the motorway mm. and we'd be escorted everywhere and you know there was there was always talk of the house being bugged which it was um, and you know phone lines intercepted and um, and people making comments I mean people always make comments just on the way in here the doorman was like that's an interesting name and oh, then really? you know sort of, sort of having a an in-depth conversation and there's always that m- initial wariness but I think I feel so um I don't think people are necessarily now as well there are lots of people who still absolutely you know find him abhorrent and I totally understand that but not many not many people who would go so far as to think that I would be you know mm, fair game to sort of it, yeah. yeah um so yeah I've always sort of known but I guess it's just my uh sort of relationship with his story has definitely changed as I've, as I've had children of my own and because mm. you know I think politically I would never judge someone well, I was gonna say I'd never judge someone for their politics I definitely never judge someone for their left-wing politics <laughs> um and I don't, you know, I don't, um, I don't sort of condemn what he did in the context of, of, of the, of you know, the rise of fascism and all those sorts of things. Um, and I think it was complex, and it, and it also do, almost doesn't matter what I think, mm. you know, really doesn't mm. matter. But in terms of the family, that's more complicated, um, and it's more interesting to me just how the fact that it's always um, his story is always drawn in the context of the country and the men that he betrayed Mm. whereas it's never there's never been any consideration of the women or the family and when you sort of it's just a a wider reflection of of what of our expectations Mm. Um, and I'm just fascinated what happens when you sort of transpose the decisions that Kim made and imagine it through the lens of a woman Mm. suddenly how everything is suddenly transformed Mm. and 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 it becomes almost impossible to believe that someone could make that decision Mm. um but when it's a man we don't think twice which brings us back to the book really because (laughs) very neatly um so you are obviously busy promoting the book at the moment and you're working on the follow-ups um what else do you have on the horizon i mean that's quite a lot i don't know if there's room for anything else to be honest but in case there is anything (laughs) in case there's anything that you want to talk about is there anything that you're looking forward to for i mean do you have a nice holiday or anything planned well uh, funny enough so the the one thing i think that um i love about writing is that it enables you as i said to sort of go places that you are that you can't when you sort of have the constraints of um young children um but we have a plan that's sort of been um you know been mulling about and sort of boring on about for um months if not years to go traveling for a while so this week we're going uh this week this summer we're going away for six weeks Mm. just a couple of weeks after the book launches which is potentially really bad timing but also really good timing depending on how you see it um Mm. and then in january we're thinking of going away for six months and sort of um just I just I feel like I've lived in London all my life um I long for adventure um of the sort that involves going to different places and Mm. meeting new people and um and it sounds like such a cliche 
to you know sort of take your kids around in a camper van for six months and um but we are in a really privileged position where we can work from anywhere mm. um and my daughter's going to be 10 next year and then you know she's the eldest um and then after that it just becomes too complicated so that's our plan um to do something that sort of gives me a new horizon because i am very painfully aware that all of my books sort of centre around Hampstead Heath which <laughs> 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 is probably where Hampstead I sort of Heath. spent the majority of my life so I feel like I need to sort of broaden those horizons Okay I've got one final question before I let you go because we're running out of time uh, which is the question I ask everyone which is um, if you could go back and give your younger self or an aspiring writer listening one piece of advice what would it be? I think, obviously, it's very difficult to say one particular piece of advice, but the the thing that I think um, can be applied across the board is that you need to keep going. Mm. Um, there are so many reasons not to write, and there are so many reasons why it's not a sensible or an easy or necessarily, you know, feels like the right thing thing to do or I think it always feels like the right thing to do but maybe doesn't feel like you know it, it, it can feel quite indulgent um, or potentially heartbreaking when it doesn't seem to be going right in that moment but I think you just have to persevere hmm. and I don't know if this is just an addendum it's not a second point obviously you're allowed that, to have more than <laughs> <okay>. one thing <laughs> um, I was thinking I, I was listening to a bit of Kenny Rogers on the way here and in that <laughs> song The Gambler he says you've got to know when to hold them know when to fold them know when to walk away know when to run I was very tempted to sing that but I didn't um, and I think that's a really interesting point like it's that thing about knowing like listening to yourself and knowing when it's time not just with writing but with your life and what you're doing generally knowing when to keep pushing with something mm. and knowing when something isn't working and to pull back and I think if you can sort of strike the balance between those two things knowing that you'll get it wrong at some point but if you listen to your gut you'll generally be following the right path then that is a good measure of how to live your life Charlotte, on that note, thank you so much. That's a wonderful piece of advice to end on. And um, to everyone listening, the most difficult thing is out now. So that's it from me. Thank you so much for listening to The Sunday Salon. Please do share your thoughts about the episode with me. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Alicezania. And more importantly, if you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate or review it. It really helps other people find it and its position in the charts. So until next week, thank you very much and goodbye. <laughs>